we are recording. Hi everyone and happy new year. And welcome to Varsity Switchboard for Lent 2021. <laughs> Christ, the year didn't even pass. I'm so tired. Hang on, hang on, compose. Welcome to Varsity Switchboard for Lent 2021. And we are your podcast producers for this term. Eliza's at home. I'm staying here in Cambridge. So we are here to give you Cambridge from home and Cambridge from Cambridge in a term where, sadly, everything has gone online. The beloved Maybell band Colonel Spanky's Love Ensemble putting it a lot better than we could. It really does feel like we ain't got no home. So we're hoping that amongst the Zoom fatigue, you can switch off and feel at home when you tune in to Switchboard. We're going to do our best to bring the Cambridge Prep queue to your listening ears. Hi everyone and welcome to the 10th and final episode of Switchboard for Lent 2021. In this episode, we're reflecting on our time at Switchboard and also the lockdown of the last year. I mean, we're coming up to the anniversary of lockdown. It's the 23rd of March. I think so. Yeah. So, you know, a whole year in this place, in this in this kind of new normality as it's come to be. And we thought we'd just do an episode focusing on the good, the bad and the ugly. Different people's experiences. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the year that's passed and what's to come basically. On that note, I think we should just hand over to Alex, who is a member of our Switchboard team, and Amber spoke to Alex to hear about her experience over the last year. Hiya, (laughs) Um, for the sake of the recording. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you're here today? So, I'm Alex, I'm one of the editors for for Switchboard, so me and Amber know each other quite well at this (laughs) point. And yeah, I'm, I'm basically here because I've had quite a different lockdown year to a lot of other people. And so I thought it would be kind of an interesting perspective to, to, to have for the episode. I guess to kind of elaborate a bit more on why I'm here. A lot of things have happened in the last year to me that were not lockdown related. So I think during lockdown one, there were a couple of deaths in the family, a couple of my aunts, neither COVID related, both the other side of the country neither funeral were possible to go to so that was kind of the first thing and then further into lockdown I'm imagining kind of as Covid was starting to exacerbate a lot of mental health problems for a lot of people that was also starting to happen to me so I guess it was the it was the point where Covid exacerbated a lot of my coping mechanisms and my problems to a point that they were debilitating and unsustainable and I just couldn't function for a while really so I then in September decided to go to the GP and get things sorted went on antidepressants went into counselling and I'm now working with some diagnoses which is quite nice so again it was a very strange position because it was issues that had been going on for years that I think probably just because of lockdown and being on your own in a position where you can't focus on anything else it was like right 
now you're going to break down and these things aren't going to work anymore. So that was that. And then I guess the third thing was that in October, I discovered that my mum, who I've been estranged from for about eight years now, she has been diagnosed with Huntington's disease, which for those of you who maybe don't know what that is, it's a genetic condition, which kind of similarly to like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's deteriorates your brain often affects your motor functions, your ability to speak, and basically it tends to onset between the ages of 30 and 50. And from the point where symptoms start to develop, your life expectancy is currently between 15 and 20 years because there is no cure and there's no way to slow down that deterioration at the minute. And obviously it is genetic. So in discovering that my mum has this disease, I also discovered that I have a 50% chance of having this disease as well. And so since October, I've been in the process of trying to get tested to see if I have the same gene that will cause me to develop this disease. And currently still in the process of that is quite a long process because it's quite a big thing to know if you have this or not, because there is no cure. According to medical terminology, it is a terminal illness. And sort of knowing you've got a terminal illness is obviously quite a big thing to know. It can affect things like you want to have children and pass on that gene if you do have it or your ability to get life insurance. If you know that you're going to develop this disease, that can be a lot harder, things like that. So what the process tends to be is that you get three counselling sessions over quite a stretched period of time just to check that you are aware of the risks or aware of the, the negatives of possibly knowing this knowledge and kind of making sure that this is something that you want to do before doing the test which is just a simple blood test like it's a it's a very simple test but it takes a very long time so I'm in the process of doing that at the minute. I mean it's been a crazy year for everyone but I think you're completely right in saying that there are so many different experiences and honestly thank you so so much for being open about coming and talking to us about it today because I'm sure that you're not alone in this I know for a fact that the attention being paid to things that are not COVID related is really not where it should be for for almost anything in various different sectors. I mean, to be candid, I've kind of been going through a similar thing with with the mental health thing. Exactly as you said, kind of your everything that's been working for the last three four years. You're kind of like, oh, hang on a minute, why isn't this why isn't this doing anything anymore? Exactly. And now counselling's online and I'm convinced, having gone through four separate circuits, I'm convinced that waiting lists for any form of mental health support is no shorter than six weeks for anything. Nope. Anything. I honestly half forget that I've asked for help and then I get an email and it's like, oh my God, I remember I did that. Yeah, (laughs) I completely agree. And I almost don't know whether that's a testament to a failing in the service or whether it's just the case that so many people are using it at the minute. I mean, this is the thing. I think it's it's a service that's not built for a like post-pandemic craze. And obviously because the whole kind of themes of this episode is kind of reflecting on the year, I think one of the big things for, for a lot of people will be that as they reflect on kind of 2020, 2021, is kind of learning about what mental health is. I think especially we did an episode on this a while ago and Mm -hmm. I remember having conversations being like just because you've never thought you were a part of that whole world before doesn't mean that a pandemic isn't going to affect you in the same way like it's 
there are so many different ways that this last year has affected people. And I think, as you said, kind of from kind of from the beginning, talking about deaths in the family, again, that aren't COVID related, but that still, despite that, not an access to a funeral, not an access to any of that. How was that? How did you kind of deal with that as a family as a whole? I mean, we were quite fortunate that I suppose we were given a Zoom alternative. There was kind of a screening of the funeral that we could watch. And it was definitely a very weird experience because we were almost like, do we, do we dress up for this? Watch it in pajamas? Is that disrespectful? And yeah, obviously, because it was my dad's family that this was affecting, we, me and my stepmom just kind of, we went by what he wanted to do because obviously it was him that was affected the most out of this. And because we've lived quite far away from the rest of our family for quite a long time obviously it was him that had the deepest connection so yeah we very much played it by what my dad wanted to do obviously kept in touch with the family there were lots of calls lots of zooms so I guess in that way it's it's one of those times that you can be as much as zoom is irritating you can be grateful for the fact that it exists and we don't have to like be in 1920 and be sending letters or something that take two weeks to arrive and things like that No, completely. I think, again, like bringing into the idea of how you're going to remember this time, if it's anything, it will be Zoom for better and for worse. I think there's definitely been a sense of whether it's a personal tragedy or whether, you know, someone you know is not in a very good place and you're not really sure what to do about it. The fact that it's now so much, I don't know if you've had the same thing, but it's now so much more normal for my friends to just FaceTime me out of nowhere. Like also, I think it's because the assumption that you're not doing anything. So I'll just get FaceTimed out of nowhere and it's like, oh, hello. And that never would have happened two years ago. Yeah, definitely. I was on my year abroad before COVID happened. And so it's amazing seeing the difference between communication and FaceTime in that year versus communication and FaceTime in Mm. this year has been so different. I guess because everyone's had to do it. It's almost been so much easier. Oh my God, no, completely. It's like, because I, I was always a kind of phone cally person. I always preferred calling to, to texting, but mm. none of my friends were ever like that. So it was always long, long streams of messages. And it's now so much better that I can just be like, I can send you a Zoom link. And that's not weird. <laughs> that's normal. A big thing that, that you touched upon as well is dealing with it. From what you said, you spoke from October, September, kind of like through the summer, like this is a long period of time, right? It's a long, long adjustment period of time. So the fact that so much has so much has happened in what I'm sure has felt like the longest and the shortest time, right? Yeah, definitely. At the beginning of Michaelmas, this isn't particularly relevant, but it just strikes me as quite funny. We ordered a Chinese in my household and it came with fortune cookies and it was October at this point. It's kind of relevant to say that it was October at this point. <laughs> it said good things will come in September. Oh, <laughs> like, God. <laughs> I have to wait a whole year. Come what? on. <laughs> good things well to be fair that's some optimism that's at least there will be good things at some point that's good from my perspective I do this thing where I kind of write down everything that's happened in a day in a little book and I'm currently like looking back at a year ago today and I'm like oh my god this is just not this is just not the same thing even like you said even just from a purely kind of I'm looking from a from a mental health perspective I was nowhere near more okay than I am now like there was it wasn't that at all but because there were things going on and because life was different I wasn't having the kind of sessions that I'm having now I wasn't I wasn't having to like 
think of these all these new ways to cope with what at the time I already had these installed things that I knew how to do yeah exactly it's a strange one because I think if someone else were to look at your life and see oh in 2020 you got diagnosed with these things you got diagnosed with depression or or Mm -hmm. personally I got diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder as well you know they're gonna think oh well 2020 must have been a bad time for you but those problems were there before you got the label yeah and in some ways it's almost better now that there's a name to it because it's it's the start of things becoming a bit better Mm -hmm. I I couldn't agree more I like I think my personal thing is that I'm very much dealing with things that have been present for the last kind of seven years and the last like three years the last four years and whenever I'm going through a process I'm kind of there and I'm like like oh why have you come today and I'm like well I've come today because it kind of I, I, I kind of couldn't think of anything else to do because there wasn't <laughs> anything else to do and my my brain was exploding but I probably should have come here ages ago so yeah. it's quite and I'm I'm completely the same the putting words to something that's always been there but that I haven't really been able to pinpoint is mm-hmm. so so unbelievably helpful and again that's always going to be something that I look back on 2020, 2021, I will always look back on this as kind of like, okay, this is when I actually started using language that helped me understand what was always going on in my brain. Yeah, as horrible as it was hearing about the Huntington's disease for a variety of reasons, it's almost nice because that gene, whether I, I currently don't know if I have it or not, I've not reached the point where I've got the test yet, but that gene whether I have it or I don't was always going to be there and it's quite nice at least knowing about it Mm. if it's there or if it's not doing it at this point in your life as well when like you said because the process is quite long I'm assuming that it it must feel better to be able to, to to have started the process early enough in a way so you can identify it yeah because it's quite a scary thing to hear that possibly when I get to 30, I may only have 15 or 20 years left to live, you know? Can't, exactly. I can't imagine. And I think you make such a good point that when the whole world seems to be going through something, but you're going through something else, it's, it's a completely different experience. And genuinely, I admire you so much for it because it's bad enough to watch the whole world crumble when you're not dealing with your own nightmares inside it's very weird hearing someone say that they admire me for it yeah no I I genuinely like I genuinely think that's not said enough is the idea of being able to kind of just keep yourself afloat these days I say is an achievement I've said that to so many of my friends kind of even if friends haven't really struggled that much but kind of now are slightly like not feeling great about it. I'm kind of like the fact that you are here and the fact that you are sitting and talking to me about it is huge. Yeah. So going through anything more than that, even more so, genuinely cannot say that enough. And I think that's the unifying thing is that we've, whether COVID related or not, we've all had individual struggles and I'm not going to sit here and say that my struggles have been worse than anyone else because I doubt that they have. They've just been different and like you said, I think the unifying thing is that, you know, we're all managing to stay afloat at the end of the day. <laughs> exactly. We're all managing to stay afloat. Everyone deals with things differently. Everyone's person, every, whatever is going on in anyone's life, COVID related or not, is still impacted by the state the world is currently in. Mm. So I think 
genuinely, if there's one thing anyone takes away from this whole episode is any mountain that you're climbing now, imagine that you're climbing it with kind of metal shoes. And those, and the fact that you're still there, that you're still doing it, is such a massive accomplishment, as it would be anyway, but with those metal shoes on, it's, it's amazing, genuinely. I think that's a really nice place to end it. Thank you so much, Alex. For Yeah, no problem. Thank you. About everything. Leading on from Amber's metaphor of climbing Everest in metal shoes, I've been thinking a lot about the impact of isolation on our ability to climb our own self-set mountains. Everyone's high achieving in an aspect of their life, and this often strays into perfectionism. So I'm concerned with how isolation, a time when we really should be setting ourselves the bare minimum, has created a situation where our ascent to our own goals has only steepened. A lot of Cambridge students are perfectionists, but I don't think that's something internal. Rather, I think it's something that we've internalised. Isolation might seem like the perfect opportunity to escape the expectations of others, but I actually think that we're going through somewhat of a perfectionism pandemic. On a daily basis, people us off. Your flatmates washing up, your brother's whistling, and your supervisor's illegible scrawl are all small human flaws that can drive us up the wall. Endearingly, we've named them pet peeves, but their reality isn't so cute. Maybe no one else can hear quite how tone-deaf your brother is, but your reaction to his piercing tune? It's probably more beastly than domesticated. Those of us living in households will appreciate that lockdown didn't necessarily relieve those tensions. Granted, we no longer had to tolerate our work colleagues or neighbours, the people we didn't choose to spend time with before lockdown. But the family home or squat student flat, supposedly shared with those dearest to us, quickly became a vast arena for a heated argument during isolation. Others may have a rose-tinted view of life post-Covid, even if that excitement is more to do with the ability to get a distance from their household than it is to reconnect with others. But for those of you who've been unnecessarily irked by your co-inhabitants during lockdown, you should be a little bit more cynical about your prospects post-Covid. Isn't the end of lockdown merely trading one thing for another? Sure, you'll be free to see whoever you please. But that doesn't sound quite so idyllic if it's only the freedom to be annoyed by whoever you please. Our irritability is one of the less pleasant sides of human nature. We tend to suppress it because it impacts our relationships. Whilst it may be best not to show our frustration, we need to learn how to appreciate that it's there. In recognising why we're so ready to pick out flaws in others, we might be able to recognise that the issue actually isn't with them at all. It's with us and our own high standards. It's because we're perfectionists. It's wrong to blame perfectionism on the individual. Cambridge students are often told that having high standards for achievement is the root cause of their problems. It's silly, we're told, to be dissatisfied with an average class mark or a draw in a varsity match. But could we really blame the individual for this? Is it really so silly to seek out validation when every single student here has been continuously rewarded for doing just that? Why wouldn't you value good grades, badges or praise when, by the very nature of getting here, you've continuously been told that it's something that you're good at? Maybe that's why some of us have such high standards in our personal lives, both for ourselves and others. We've always felt good when we've scored a goal or landed an internship, 
so we seek that same good feeling from achieving, be that in a diet or a relationship. See, perfectionism stems from an external desire for validation, which then becomes internalised. But ironically, isolation isn't the cure. To turn to our cynic confined within their household, such high standards make us difficult to be around, but this is only exacerbated by the stress of lockdown. Around a year ago, one group of academics foreshadowed a perfectionism pandemic, in which we constantly seek to perfect in order to regain control of our lives during lockdown, a time of uncertainty. That's easy to understand in the professional world, where the relationship between achievement and feeling good is linear. In our degrees, we achieve, we are praised, we are validated. So it's understandable that amongst the stress of COVID, we're chasing that good feeling, and achievement is a familiar means there. But isolation has prompted the perfectionist to seek this in their personal lives. The incessant lockdown baking or running habits seems an obvious example, but it applies to our relationships too. During the stress of isolation, the cynic tricks themselves that if they and those in their household can be perfect, the world can be too. This leads them to a frustration with others that actually just embodies a frustration that the world can't be perfect, especially during lockdown. See, isolation has made everyone's world smaller. But for the cynic, that's merely shifted the boundaries of what could be perfectible. So if perfectionism is something that we've internalised and it's somehow linked to our cynicism or optimism of others, we might think it could be overcome if we simply isolated ourselves. Free from the real expectations or assumed expectations of others, we'd be free to act as we please. If we isolate ourselves, we're only left with our own standards and our own judgment as to whether we've fulfilled those standards. So even if we reach our goals, we won't appreciate our successes like we would those of others. And when we inevitably miss some of our goals, we aren't as understanding as we would be of others. Now, the solution isn't to seek external validation. But isolation is almost a more dangerous thing for the perfectionist, left alone only with their high standards which go utterly unchecked. So to all the Cambridge students out there who are struggling, which, to be honest, is everyone during an online term and a global pandemic, you've gotten good at suppressing your frustration when other people don't meet your high standards. Remember to keep connected to others who will show you that same kindness. And remember to show that kindness to yourself. So now we've heard a little bit about this last year and kind of how it's affected people because of COVID and also in other realms. And now we're really excitedly going to hear from the writer of In a Cave of Voice, which is a brilliant new show, which um, is a kind of audio immersive play um, that's actually going to be previewed on the 20th of March at 7.45. And it's part of the National Student Drama Festival, which will be on the 31st. So really exciting stuff. And Eliza's just going to speak to them a little bit about what the show is about and why it's relevant today. So I spoke with Rebecca King, who is the writer of In a Cave, A Voice. And to start off, I wanted to ask how the idea for a one Neolithic woman show came about. Me being told by an artistic director at a theatre that will remain nameless, that they were only interested in plays that were set today or in the future. And I thought that's a shame because there's so many great stories and as somebody who studies uh, the Renaissance, I, I'm 
kind of passionate about rediscovering especially women's stories or you know, you know less well-represented perspectives of the past we surely can still enjoy uh, hearing about human beings um, who lived a long time ago um, who had a different uh, set of circumstances uh, to us uh, a, a different uh, a different you know context but who were human and who had all the emotions we have so I set myself this challenge of thinking, you know, I bet I could write a play that was set in a cave with some Neolithic person and, and it would still ring true. There would still be, you know, all these themes you could tap into without any kind of contextual familiarity. Um, and that's basically what, where the idea came from. And then I had the opportunity to sort of write that idea last term when the Pembroke players were running their um, a playwriting competition which was a great initiative it got everybody writing and it made us feel especially me as a new student um, at Cambridge uh, that you know that there was this community of writers and theatre makers um, who were keeping theatre going like you say during lockdown and so I wrote it and it's about a young uh, Neolithic a girl who is maybe, I don't know, in her late teens, early 20s at, the, at 20s at the oldest, and she's been left behind while her family goes to look for the herd of cattle that they depend upon, which has gone missing in the snow. And she's been left behind in part because she's got this voice, which is, uh, she's very good at singing in a, a style called kulning, which is like a kind of a cross between a, a song and a, and a herding call. And it's to um, cast your voice. Um, it works particularly well with the soprano register. Um, if register is the right word, I'm not a musician, um, but it, it works very well with the soprano voice. Um, it casts the voice as far as possible around the mountains and it means that the, the, the cattle is most likely to hear it and come back. So she's been left behind to do that, to go out and call for the herd while her family looks. And it's about her speaking to herself and her imagination and we are her imaginary friends essentially that she welcomes in and talks to and she tells us all about her family. And um, the play is about her kind of coming to terms with her isolation through this um, conversation that she has with us and, and how this kind of lovely bubbly storytelling um, has underneath it a sense of grief and loneliness and hope and all of those things, all of those big emotions that I wanted to try to tap into that we can still empathise with, even though we are a world away. So that's basically the story. And I won't tell you what happens at the end. Um, you have to come and listen. But we've uh, done a version of it for audio now for NSDF, uh, which works really beautifully, actually. Um, we can talk about that in a moment, the adaptation side of things. Uh, but that's basically it. It's about being on your own and um, using your imagination to survive, which a lot of us, I think, can probably relate to <laughs> over the last year. <laughs> I was going to say there's such a clear link between a time of isolation and the experience of this girl left alone in a cave. I mean, is there a sense in which you see yourself in that character or you feel that she's having a similar experience to you've had? Yeah, I think, well, I had the idea for, for the play actually before lockdown, before co before we'd even heard the word COVID. <laughs> um, and uh, and so that side of it kind of came, sort of was surprisingly um, resonant. And, then, and I sort of lent into that a bit more even than I thought I would, um, just from the pure coincidence of finding I kind of, we really all were isolated like she was. Um, 
in terms of yeah seeing myself in the character I think I definitely do I think when I was talking to um, the director about the director and the actor um, uh, Lillian and Claire who were both great uh, we were talking about the character and I actually realized that the relationship she has with her older brother is much I'm much more like the older brother in the relationship in that you know I was the eldest child I was kind of the you know the um <laughs> oh I don't know the bossy one and my little sister would follow me around very excited but also being kind of bullied <laughs> you know the big the big brother doesn't really want her hanging on his coattails and there she's so she's got this this relationship with her big brother that um has all of the sort of like fraught you know tensions but also kind of genuine affections of the sibling relationship I have with my sisters and I'm, I'm more like the older brother they she's more like my little sisters and in a way it's like it's it's kind of it, she reminds me of you know how would my little sisters survive if I had to leave them and they were on their own <laughs> <laughs> I think it's we'll come back to this idea about how the audience are interacting but one thing that I think is quite striking is that this is a play that is entirely online and it's about a very kind of prehistoric time without any sort of technology. Is there any way that, because I can see how if you were live, it would be quite compelling to have <laughs> some sort of Neolithic um, woman on stage banging some drums and kind of writing on a wall or what have you. How do you replicate that using such new technology? And is there a contrast there that you've tried to make use of? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that really is just sound. It's 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 much more about sound now, even than it was when I first imagined it. When I first imagined it, I thought about transforming either a studio like a black box into a realistic feeling cave or even doing it in a real cave as there are, you know, a few scattered here and there um, across the UK. And and I think that if it hadn't if sound hadn't been so important to the story, um, anyway, I think it wouldn't have worked as well making that transition as it does. Um, the use of sound, not only her singing, but just her voice. The fact that it's about her voice. This is like the, the earliest form of theatre is just somebody standing up and telling a good story and maybe embellishing a bit and, and reenacting the different parts. Um, so, so bringing it back to just the sound of a crackling fire and somebody speaking to you is actually really powerful. It works really well with the original concept. Also, we've got um, a fantastic composer, uh, Lily, who is, um, who's been creating some incredible sort of uh, musical soundscapes. I, I was originally down to do sound design. I think I'm still listed as sound designer. I've only really contributed a few, you know, samples here and there of interesting sounds really that the, the way that it sounds is down to both the actor uh, Claire and the composer Lily who's who've who've made this kind of this sort of beautiful sounding piece so I think that's how technology has most um, assisted us is being able to to do all these interesting things with sound that we couldn't necessarily have done in 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 real life like you can with sound designing you can have wolves howling uh, the wind outside um so that's been nice actually yeah it's worked surprisingly well and it sounds like the initial idea for the play being a one one woman act um and also being in this kind of black box setup it was quite simplistic but i like the sound you've you've managed to include the audience somehow in the sound design which 
I guess, is that the experimental part of the play? Yeah, so we, well, what we want is, and there's a bit at the beginning where there is a, there is a, a kind of instructions on how to listen to the play. And we don't just want people to be sitting down at their computer. We want people to sort of actually physically transform the space that they're in a little bit. So you get sort of talked through this at the beginning before the, the character turns up, uh, you, before she gets there, you have to get the cave in order and you have to turn your room into the basic layout of the cave that you're going to imagine that you're in uh, so that things are happening around you and with you and you are taking part in the ritual of it as if you're really in that space. So it's about, again, kind of, I mentioned bringing us back to a, a kind of ancient way of telling stories, but it's also what we do when we're children. It's also the first way that we tell stories. We, you know, have nothing to do one afternoon and we turn our living room into a castle or our climbing frame into a ship. And there's a little bit of that here. That's the most experimental thing about it is this attempt to get grown-ups to um, turn their room into a cave and imagine that they are somewhere else and that they're listening to somebody speaking to them um, who's really there, you know, and and, uh, and really use their imaginations. So having been forced to adapt a play that was not at all written for a radio format into one, would you now be tempted to do other radio plays in the future or is it a case of the ADC and Life Theatre restarts and you, you're back on that? That's such a good question. I So I've fallen in love with sound design a little bit since lockdown began. Um, even before doing this last term, I did a short play for Hatch uh, with the Marlowe Society, which was called The Winter Lamb. And that was, um, I was again, sort of setting myself a challenge. The challenge there was to uh, create a kind of spooky, eerie sound design, um, reminiscent of something from uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, the old like black and white version where it, the, just an understated sound effect can be really disturbing and dreamlike and surreal. Um, and I really enjoyed doing that. And I'd already been kind of, you know, watching films like The Lighthouse and being sort of fascinated by the way that sound design really shaped uh, the, the, the kind of the, the setting and the atmosphere. And it's also quite fun being somebody who's used to the restrictions of the stage to suddenly be able to do whatever you like, basically, or be in any location without worrying about the budget. Uh, sound gives you an enormous amount of freedom. Um, having said that, though, I don't think it always works. And I, you know, I, I did do a, we did do a, a pre-recorded preview of um, my adaptation of Thomas Hardy's The Well Beloved, which was meant to be the ABC Late Show for week four. And we basically just, just did a reading of the play. And in that particular case, it kind of reminded me of how much I wanted there to be an audience there. I wanted there to be, you know, the, the humour to be picked up on by, by people listening and, and little titters of laughter. And I wanted to have the kind of um, the, the physical sexual tension of the, the characters a bit more explicit. So I've, I've had both an experience of doing something that was specifically written for sound that I really enjoyed that, that kind of sparked an interest in that for me. And I hopefully will continue to do that. But I've also had, had an experience that's reminded me of what I do love about live theatre. So the answer is basically both. I want to do more sound design, but I have, I have been learning what works as a sound design piece and what doesn't. And I, I am looking forward to being able to put my 
very theatrical scripts in front of an audience again. <laughs> Just as a final thought, there's a lot there kind of contrasting restriction and freedom. Mm -hmm. So in life theatre, you're restricted by the confines of the stage, but equally with all of this online stuff, you have the freedom to be as experimental as you're being. You're also restricted. Maybe that's why a one woman play works so well. Yeah. If you had to look back on this whole lockdown period and all the disruptions to theatre, what would be your reflection on kind of the freedoms that it's given to you? And is there anything that you can learn from? I think that the main takeaway from COVID is that you sort of can't, you can't kill storytelling. And actually every, every, in every period, in every era where there's been a great catastrophe, whether it's the war, the great war, you know, <laughs> all the war poets that we study at school, or whether it's the plague, you know, Boccaccio writing funny stories to cheer people up after the plague. Um, all over the world, times of uh, stress and strain and difficulty, especially on a societal level, tend to produce rather than stifle creativity. And um, being an early modernist, I always think back to when Cromwell banned theatre. I think theatre was banned for, for years and it, it didn't go away at all. It, it was it was suppressed, but it, it, it survived. You can't really kill storytelling. You can't um, you, you can't really stop people being creative. We've just seen all sorts of new ways of creating that were um, uh, innovated under duress and the best of those the things that we've loved and we've enjoyed will survive and make our, our theatre all the richer for it so I, I, I guess my one takeaway would just be optimism that the show must go on <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful we've heard I suppose the story behind your storytelling which people can hear on the 20th of March um, and it's part of the National Student Drama Festival as well which is such a huge achievement and a brilliant thing to be able to do during lockdown yeah really good fun we've been very lucky yeah thank you so much rebecca for chatting with me speaking with rebecca had a healthy dose of optimism for the future but an acceptance of some good things that are happening in the present but amber wanted to offer her reflections on why some people may be apprehensive about the end of lockdown when boris's out of lockdown roadmap was released i think there was definitely a kind of real range of responses so I don't know about everyone else, but I was definitely getting a load of messages that were either like, oh my God, yes, like clubs are opening, kind of festivals, like all of these different things going around. And there were also a few people who were kind of like, what? What do you mean? There's, there's, there's an end to all of this. And I was definitely in that latter category. Let me explain. I hated this lockdown period as much as anyone. I kind of am a trademark extrovert who leeches off human contact for any form of energy that I have. And when we went into the first lockdown, I really struggled, as I think a lot of people did, to kind of get used to this weird new lifestyle of being stuck at home with my parents in a format I really wasn't used to. It took me a long time to kind of adjust to this new way of life and adjust to the idea that my world was going to be small for a little while and that this was just what I had to deal with. So I thought, I thought to myself, well, you've got to improvise, adapt, overcome. And over the last, well, year, almost exactly a year, 
my kind of sense of self adapted itself to fit a lockdown environment as a kind of survival instinct. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to get used to spending some time on my own. I'm going to have to get used to kind of not reading the news too much, to kind of taking care of myself. And that led to what has been a really great but exhausting period of kind of self-care and working with kind of working through a lot of things that have been happening for a really long time but I kind of used this lockdown period to really take care of myself and to learn about myself and really make myself vulnerable in a way that I never had before which basically was hard like it's hard kind of exposing your soul to be mended in a really strange way and so when this roadmap was announced I really had a sense of kind of suddenly I had to change state again I guess that's the best way to think about it is suddenly I had to change back to everything that was before a year ago and again don't get me wrong I I can't wait to hug my family and see my cat and I can't wait to kind of go on holiday with my boyfriend and be able to actually live a life that's semi what I was promised coming to Cambridge but that doesn't mean that the transition period from everything I've learnt to be now won't be difficult. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to struggle when I'm in a crowded street. I'm not going to... It's going to take a while to kind of dismantle all the instincts that I've built up over the last year. And this is personal experience, but I'm sure it's been very similar for a lot of people. So I think something that's really, really important to remember in these next few weeks is that everyone's going to be reacting differently if your friends aren't kind of jumping for joy at holiday plans just yet don't take it personally it might not be a reflection on you it might just be a case of taking a minute to readjust get used to the idea of going out into the outside world again and kind of making sure that they're ready and I guess the most important thing is The outside world will still be there when you're ready to go out and meet it. Just because Lola's is reopening on the 21st of June, hopefully, doesn't mean you have to be there. You can take your time. You're allowed to take your time. But I'm afraid our time is up. So here are our final reflections on Switchboard and the past year. Switchboard's obviously been a massive part of our term of the term that we just had I think it's been a really nice kind of like stabilizer like we have our meetings every week and we know we have to record different bits and it's it's the one of the few forms of like stability that we've had and so it's been really nice to have that kind of always there yeah definitely and also because the majority of the team are at home feasibly without contact with anybody else their own age it's been nice to have a group of people to interact with I guess on that note, if you want to be involved with Switchboard, please contact us or contact Varsity and get involved for next term. It's, you know, we couldn't recommend it highly enough. And given that next term might be also a bit of a weird one, some of the lessons that we've learned might apply. And you can get involved in whatever capacity you want, whether it's kind of being an editor, working on the transcripts, working on the articles, or if you want to apply for the jobs we've had. So 
kind of producing the podcast, hosting it, which means we kind of will talk about the ideas with the rest of the team and we'll obviously host the interviews and be here and do this. Um, and it's been a really, really good time. So genuinely, highly, highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in radio, podcasting, or just like the sound of their own voice. And I guess to link it to what you were talking about, Amber, with kind of being sad for lockdown to end, or, or at least anxious, there is a there is a degree of sadness in ending in ending Switchboard because the team kind of ceases here. I mean, that's it, which is which is sad, and it's hard to let go of things like that, but also hopefully there'll be there'll be lots of other opportunities with switchboard etc and i'm sure that some of our listeners will want to get involved in those and hopefully that's a sentiment that people can try and take into life post covid definitely so i guess that's it from us which is really weird um but genuinely thank you to everyone who's been listening and everyone obviously who's worked on the podcast our team has been amazing and genuinely we have had the loveliest time we have we've had a listenership that spans five continents and between the ages of 17 and something like 80 is the highest age (laughs) that we we've had a listener from so you know we really predominantly university students predominantly cambridge students but um we've had a really diverse listenership and i think we've managed to get a lot of different students and student societies across cambridge involved I'd like to end by saying a massive thank you to the Switchboard team, which is Katie Chambers, our wonderful social media officer, Alex Oxford, our editor, Kate Pruden, who does our transcripts, Sam Benatar, who works on all of our graphics, Sora Fenlon, who's written a load of our transcripts and who has written a lot of our articles, Bianca Shah, who's done research and contacted people, Eleanor Shamelli, who's done a lot of editing and transcripts, Ella Campbell, who's done transcripts, research, and Anjali Chapman. And yeah, a final goodbye. A final goodbye. goodbye. (laughs) A final goodbye to the Cambridge Pret queue that that never was. Yeah, and indeed Pret has now closed. Yeah, exactly. There really is a sense of finality there. We've been Amber and Eliza, your podcast hosts for this term. Thank you all so much for getting involved and listening. I want to end with a final thank you to Olivia Copeland from New Music Cambridge, who has been supplying us with some wonderful new tracks each week. Next week, some of my own music will be appearing on her show, so she asked me to play it as the single for this week's episode and to introduce it, so you thought you were getting away from my voice, but maybe not quite yet. Here's a really rough demo of a song called Archangel, and you can hear the polished version next week. The archangel came down from way up on high And said you're only ever pretty if you got a guy And you shouldn't really care about your mental health Cause you should only respect everybody but yourself She corrupted the saints but crowned the sinners And when she fell off the damn cliff edge Dragged us all down with her and she drank in the night time but slept in the day and told the insomniacs we needed to pray and the best of us got tangled with the worst and the whole white castle we fell under her curse the archangel had us all 
twisted spell Did she descend from heaven Or did she crawl up from hell We all worshipped her Because she was the ideal She had the hair, the clothes, the makeup and the Sex appeal, she was up there with the stars Something to behold, but I knew that four or five of her soul could be sold And she corrupted the saints, but she crowned the sinners And she was never a communion, cause she wanted to get thinner She commanded us, get down on your knees and pray To your saviour clad in lipstick and lace lingerie Oh, and the best us got tangled with the worst And the whole white castle we fell under her Did she descend from heaven or did she crawl up from? 